Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers. In today's episode, could a Brisbane teenager have the solution to achieving net zero? We chat with a 17-year-old who's launched the country's first youth-led initiative advocating for nuclear energy. Will Shackle launched the Nuclear for Australia campaign a year ago when he was 16. It's since gained a lot of traction on mainstream and social media. He's launched a petition that's received over 10,000 signatures. He's also given evidence to a Senate committee where he advocated for a ban on nuclear power in Australia to be lifted. And today, he makes the case for a nuclear future in Australia for us. We should just have all options on the table because there is huge, huge risk presented by our current approach. Just relying on a renewable-centric approach to reach net zero is hugely, hugely risky. And if it fails, then it fails for my generation. Yeah, so that's teenager Will Shackle and his nuclear solution, whether maybe he's onto something the adult decision makers have missed. That's after today's headlines with Eleanor Harrison-Dengate. It is Tuesday, the 17th of October. Hey Katrina, and some more grim news out of Israel this morning. There are fears the war could be expanded to two fronts. Hezbollah has been exchanging fire with Israel over the last several days on the northern border with Lebanon in the deadliest escalation there since they fought a major war in 2006. And I also have a message for Iran and Hezbollah. Don't test us in the north. Don't repeat the mistake you already made once, because today the price you will pay will be much heavier. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there. Israel has moved to evacuate people living within two kilometres of the border. And Katrina, you've been having a bit of a look at how the US is responding. Yeah, a second US aircraft carrier is now on its way to sit off Israel. It's the USS Dwight Eisenhower dragging with it a battle group of destroyers, frigates, subs, over 90 aircraft. It joins the USS Gerald R. Ford, which is already parked in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, this is all seen as a power move to intimidate Hezbollah in Lebanon and any other surrounding nation nearby, especially Iran. While in Gaza, it's estimated more than 4,000 people have now been killed in this conflict so far. Almost 200 Israelis, including children, have been taken hostage. The UN is saying fuel for 35 hospitals in the Gaza region is expected to last only around 24 more hours, and that's going to put about three and a half thousand patients at risk. The World Health Organization has also spoken out overnight, saying the Palestinian enclave in Gaza is running out of water and both are calling for unobstructed access for humanitarian aid. So speaking of that, trying to get aid in there, the White House is hoping for the border with Egypt to open for a few hours today, although Hamas-affiliated media is saying Israeli shelling is hitting the area near the Rafah crossing area and that there really hasn't been much movement on the Egyptian side. And for the Australians, Foreign Minister Penny Wong has confirmed two government-facilitated flights departing Israel overnight. 
Yeah, I was hearing some analysis yesterday, Eleanor, about, um, you know, what potentially could happen with uh, economic forecasting for particularly the price of oil. Um, since the attack by Hamas on Israel, the price of oil has already jumped by $6 a barrel. Bloomberg estimates if there is a full-blown war between Iran and Israel, the price of oil could jump by up to $70 a barrel. Now, that would not only affect prices at the pump here in Australia, but the cost of everything from, you know, transportation, the cooling of groceries, so we'd see it in our supermarket prices as well, uh, and it could also serve to drive up inflation even further too. The number of Aussies being diagnosed with ADHD has more than doubled in the past five years. We have new data out which shows more than 400,000 people are taking prescription drugs for the condition. The biggest increase in cases happened between 2020 and 2022. Experts are putting the rise mainly down to a backlog of undiagnosed cases. Although there has also been an expansion of access to ADHD drugs under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme during that time as well. So scripts that were previously private now show up on the data. So that could affect things too. ADHD is estimated to affect six to 10% of Australian children and two to 6% of adults. And experts are saying that these numbers are not going to be going down. If anything, they're going to keep going up, partly because adults from less advantaged backgrounds, uh, they're having a much harder time to be diagnosed with ADHD because uh, it can cost about $600 to $1,000 in the private system to be diagnosed while assessments are largely unavailable in the public system. Uh, And there's actually going to be a Senate inquiry that's going to hand down a report about that later this week. And new sports are being added to the Olympics. So cricket, baseball, softball, which is the female and male versions of baseball, flag football, lacrosse and squash will all feature at the LA Games in 2028. They've all been officially approved by the International Olympic Committee, Katrina. Yeah, I had to look some of these up. I didn't know what flag football was. (laughs) Um, Apparently it's a non-contact format of American football played by teams of five. Non-contact is good, I feel, in, in this, <laughs> this day and age. They're, they're not sure yet whether professional NFL players will be eligible to play in the Olympics. That could really spice things up. Um, looking at the other ones, squash. Jan Fran, one of our co-hosts, she is a mad squash player. I <laughs> Fun have fact. no idea about this. <laughs> I know, not many people do. So she's going to be super excited that squash is included. And, and Cricket Australia, of course, is absolutely thrilled that um, cricket's in because it hasn't featured at an Olympics since 1900 in the Paris Games. <laughs> I didn't know this, but apparently every host city under the International Olympic Committee rules can request the inclusion of sports for their edition of the game. So I'm like, well, when we host next time, can we put in like NRL and AFL and then obviously, you know, no other country really does that so we can get a few more gold medals in that tally? We definitely can. That's why breakdancing became an Olympic sport for a brief moment in time. It's not back, (laughs) but surfing, surfing will remain an Olympic sport at least for a little while longer, which is really good because... That is a sport that we do quite well in as well here in Australia. All right. Thanks for joining me, Eleanor. We are going to go to a Brisbane teenager now who could have the solution to achieving net zero. 
Now let's get into our briefing with a teenager who believes he has the answer to Australia's climate crisis by putting nuclear back on the table. 17-year-old Will Shackle is the founder of Nuclear for Australia. He says he's not aligned to any particular side of politics. He's scathing about what both have done and he believes he can make the biggest change as a citizen outsider uh, from the edges. Here he is now. There are a lot of teenagers who become quite passionate or quite intrigued, as you put it, about a whole range of issues, but few put their studies and their other things that they're doing at that particular time of their life to one side to actively lead a campaign. What made you take that next step? Well, I guess because there's been so much silence on the issue of nuclear energy, that there has been so many experts and I've reached out to them Through my research, when I was looking into nuclear energy, I reached out to many experts around the world and I talked to them about their passion for nuclear energy. And I think the thing for me that was so startling was the fact that they were being ignored and they had no platform to speak about an issue which they cared so deeply about. And based on the research I was able to do, I started to feel really strongly about the issue of nuclear energy because nuclear energy is... I think essential if Australia is to reach net zero, unlike fossil fuels, it is both safe, it's the second safest form of energy and it's clean, it's got the lowest greenhouse gas emissions and unlike renewables, it's reliable, it's the most reliable form of energy and also it's a proven form of energy because no nation around the world has been able to reach net zero without a large proportion of hydro or nuclear and honestly I don't think that Australia should be the guinea pig In that experiment, I think that we should be having all options on the table. So I think the reason I've decided to to dedicate so much time to this is because really no one else is really advocating for nuclear energy in Australia. There's certainly not many other advocates out there. So when I think that there's a really credible solution like nuclear, someone has to do it. And I, I guess I just thought it would have to be me in that case. The coalition is also on board the nuclear energy campaign and they've been really shouted down for that in a range of Mm. sectors around the country. And their opponents say, and I guess your opponents too, say that this is just another step in delaying and denying on the climate crisis. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, it's important to because I specifically advocate for the ban on nuclear energy to be lifted because Australia is the only member of the G20 which actually has a ban on nuclear energy. And I think that I just have a fundamental belief that all options should be on the table and we shouldn't restrict them. But the important context is it was actually under John Howard, under the coalition, that the ban on nuclear energy was put in place and the coalition did nothing to lift the ban on nuclear energy for decades. Net zero is going to be one of the most difficult things this nation is possibly going to undertake. And we should just have all options on the table because there is huge, huge risk presented by our current approach. Just relying on a renewable-centric approach to reach net zero is hugely, hugely risky. And if it fails, if it fails, then it fails for my generation. And the consequences of that could be disastrous in terms of what we see from climate change and also from the energy crisis. So honestly, I think there'll be an inevitable time where the usefulness of renewables will run out, that there will be issues in terms of reliability. And at that point, having the provision of nuclear energy or the option of nuclear energy, I think could be 
really, really important for our nation and could be that step we need to take to get over the line to net zero. The people who are saying that it's a distraction, they're they're arguing that it is neither uh, economically proven, so, you know, there's some uncertainty around the capital costs, but also Mm. analysis conducted by the nuclear industry itself shows that nuclear power stations take a really long time to build, uh, an average of 9.4 years compared to one to three years for a major wind or solar project. Well, first of all, in terms of the time argument, that's no reason to have the ban still in place because if that was the issue, then we would start building nuclear reactors today. But there are countries around the world, such as in the UAE, where they've been able to develop a nuclear industry in a decade and now have been powered 25%. A quarter of their energy comes from nuclear energy. So I'm not denying the fact it would take a long time for Australia to build a nuclear industry very least, at least we already have the foundations of one. We've got a research reactor 30 kilometres away from the Sydney CBD and we're renowned around the world for our our nuclear sciences organisation, ANSTO. In regards to the cost argument, what I would say is it's a heavily contested space and there's multiple things I would say, but ultimately I don't think anyone wants to hear about a 17-year-old's views on economics, but I think there's just the principled argument that You don't ban things because they're too expensive, even if nuclear energy was the most expensive form of power, which based on my research and my discussions with multiple experts in this area, I don't actually think to be true. If we were going off that logic, banning things because they're too expensive, Snowy Hydro 2 would be banned. Teslas would be banned. Solar panels back in the day would be banned. So those examples might sound a bit absurd, but I think it just points to the absurdity of the current government's policy and I just think it's crazy that the economics of nuclear is currently being used as a reason to justify what I think is an outdated and out of touch ban. Because regardless of nuclear energy takes, nuclear reactors take too long to build or cost too much, you shouldn't ban it. Because the fact is that there will be no nuclear reactors built if that is proven to be the case. But as we're seeing around the world, I think we would probably be proven the opposite. We'd probably be proven that nuclear reactors are economically viable. And that's why 50 nations around the world are considering developing a civil nuclear power industry for the first time. And I, I don't know why Australia wouldn't be entering that race when they're so... And what is it that Australia knows that all of those countries don't about nuclear energy? All right, but how are we going to overcome that sort of entrenched fear factor? I mean, going back to the original ban, there were significant community concerns about health and environmental risks. I mean, that's been borne mm. out in popular culture like The Simpsons with the three-headed fish and, um, you know, <laughs> we, we've seen Fukushima, Chernobyl. There's going to be a lot of people who don't want this in their backyard. The only evidence we do have about Australian supports of nuclear energy is the polls, and poll after poll shows that Australians support nuclear energy. In fact, 70% of Australians want nuclear energy in order to uh, help resolve the energy and climate crisis, and only 18% of people identify as anti-nuclear. So I think people are waking up to the science and the reality and getting past some of that fear-mongering and realising that nuclear energy is actually a safe energy source. Because let's be honest, they've probably 
been very close. If they've ever done any international travel, they've probably been powered by nuclear energy at some point in their lives and haven't felt the effects of it or have lived in Sydney where they're 30 kilometres away from a research reactor. Specifically to the safety of nuclear energy, statistically, nuclear energy is the second safest form of energy. The nuclear industry has a very, very strong safety record. And there has, of course, been a lot learnt from those incidents where they were relying on very, very old technology. And these days, the technological advancements are incredible in terms of the passive safety systems, which basically mean that the reactor can shut down with, without human intervention to avoid some of those issues. And I think also the context Australia is in a different context to the USSR with Chernobyl, and there's a different context as well uh, from Japan with Fukushima. Australia does not have the same issues with earthquakes. Back to your question a bit, it, there is a challenge of how you communicate it. I, I hope that I'm able to uh, help in trying to resolve some of that fear through my work with my campaign, Nuclear for Australia, and sharing facts and information about nuclear to try and resolve some of those concerns. But I think for some people, I think it probably makes sense that there will be some lingering concerns that they have with the safety of nuclear energy. You're 17. Unfortunately, you can't yet vote. That's another briefing topic. Mm. <laughs> um, but where, where to for you now? Like, where's the campaign going to go? What, what is your ultimate goal? Well, ultimately, my goal is for the ban on nuclear energy to be lifted because, like you said, I just think that it needs to be considered. I just hope that at very least, even if the ban isn't lifted, at least we have a discussion and a debate about nuclear energy. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I think at a very minimum, I hope that through what I'm doing in my campaign and the platform I've been given, I've been able to provoke some thoughts with people and force them to consider the prospect of nuclear energy in Australia. And I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but are we likely to see you run as an independent? No, um, I've, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really. Well, you can probably notice from my advocacy, I think that politicians have failed in this respect on nuclear energy and I don't know why I would, I would join them. Will, thank you so much for your time. We so appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. That's 17-year-old Will Shackle, who is still at school in Brisbane. He makes some really interesting points. And if you're keen to learn a bit more about him and his campaign, you can head on over to his website, which is nuclearforaustralia.com. He also has the letter that he received from Anthony Albanese in response to a petition and, and a letter that he sent to him. He, he has that in full on his website. So if you can to do a bit more reading around that, uh, go on over there. Listener.